the cost. Which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost? Luke 14 verse 28 The text above is one of great importance. Few are the people who are not compelled to ask themselves, what does it cost? In buying property, building houses, furnishing rooms, forming plans, changing dwellings or educating children, it is wise and prudent to look forward and consider the cost. Many people would save themselves much sorrow and trouble if they would only remember the question, what does it cost? But there is one subject on which it is especially important to count the cost. That subject is the salvation of our souls. What does it cost to be a true Christian? What does it cost to be a truly holy person? This, after all, is a great question. For lack of thought about this, thousands of people, after seeming to begin well, turn away from the road to heaven and are lost forever in hell. Let me try to say a few words that might throw light on the subject. First, I will show what it costs to be a true Christian. Secondly, I will explain why it is so important to count the cost. Lastly, I will give some hints that will help people to properly count the cost. We are living in strange times. Events are hurrying on remarkably quickly. We never know what a day may bring forth. Proverbs 27 verse 1 How much less do we know what may happen in a year? We live in a day when many people profess to be Christians. Professing Christians in every part of the land are expressing a desire for more holiness and a higher degree of spiritual life, yet it is very common to see these people receiving the word with joy, and then after two or three years falling away and going back to their sins. They had not considered what it costs to be a really consistent believer and a holy Christian. Certainly these are times when we should sit down and count the cost and consider the condition of our souls. We must pay attention to how we are. If we desire to truly be holy, it is a good sign. We may thank God for putting the desire into our hearts, but still, the cost should be counted. No doubt Christ's way to eternal life is a way of pleasantness, but it is foolish to shut our eyes to the fact that his way is narrow and a cross comes before the crown. I will show what it costs to be a true Christian. Let there be no mistake about my meaning. I am not examining what it costs to save a person's soul. I know well that it costs nothing less than the blood of the Son of God to provide an atonement and to redeem us from hell. The price paid for our redemption was nothing less than the death of Jesus Christ on Calvary. We are bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20 Christ gave himself a ransom for all, 1 Timothy 2 verse 6. This, though, is not the topic of my discussion. The point I want to consider 
is another one entirely. I want to consider what a person must be ready to give up if he wants to be saved. It is the amount of sacrifice a person must submit to if he intends to serve Christ. It is in this sense that I raise the question, what does it cost? I firmly believe that this is a most important question. I freely admit that it costs little to be a mere outward Christian. A person only has to attend a church on Sunday and to be fairly moral during the week. And he has gone as far as thousands around him ever go in religion. All this is cheap and easy work. It involves no self-denial or self-sacrifice. If this is saving Christianity, and this is what will take us to heaven when we die, we must change the description of the way of life and write, Wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to heaven. According to the standard of the Bible, it does cost something to be a real Christian. There are enemies to be overcome, battles to be fought, sacrifices to be made, Egypt to be forsaken, a wilderness to be passed through, a cross to be carried and a race to be run. Conversion is not putting a man in an armchair and taking him easily to heaven. It is the beginning of a mighty conflict in which it costs much to win the victory. Therefore arises the unspeakable importance of counting the cost. Let me try to show precisely and specifically what it costs to be a true Christian. Let us suppose that someone is motivated to serve Christ and feels drawn and inclined to follow him. Let us suppose that some affliction or some sudden death or an awakening sermon has stirred his conscience and made him feel the value of his soul so that he desires to be a true Christian. No doubt there is everything to encourage him. His sins may be freely forgiven, however many and great. His heart may be completely changed, however cold and hard. Christ and the Holy Spirit, mercy and grace are already for him, but still he should count the cost. Let us see specifically one by one the things that his Christian religion will cost him. It will cost him his self-righteousness. He must cast away all pride and proud thoughts and any conceit of his own goodness. He must be content to go to heaven as a poor sinner, saved only by free grace, owing all to the merit and righteousness of another. He must really feel the words of the prayer book, that he has erred and gone astray like a lost sheep that he has left undone the things he ought to have done, and done the things he ought not to have done, and that there is no health in him. He must be willing to give up all trust in his own morality, respectability, praying, Bible reading, church going, and sacraments, and he must trust in nothing but Jesus Christ. This sounds difficult to some. I do not wonder why. Sir, said a godly farmer to the well-known James Hervey, it is harder to deny proud self than sinful self, but it is absolutely necessary. Let us remember this first and foremost. 
It will cost us our self-righteousness to be a true Christian. It will cost him his sins. He must be willing to give up every habit and practice that is wrong in God's sight. He must set his face against it, quarrel with it, break off from it, fight with it, crucify it, and labor to keep it under subjection no matter what the world around him may say or think. He must do this honestly and fairly. There must be no separate truth with any special sin that he loves. He must consider all sins to be his deadly enemies, and he must hate every false way, whether little or great, whether open or secret, all his sins must be thoroughly renounced. They may struggle hard with him every day and may sometimes almost get the mastery over him, but he must never give in to them. He must keep up a perpetual war with his sins. It is written, Cast away from you all your iniquities, Ezekiel 18, verse 31. Redeem thy sins and thine iniquities, Daniel 4, verse 27, and cease to do evil, Isaiah 1, verse 16. This all seems difficult. Our sins are often as dear to us as our children. We love them, hug them, cleave to them, and delight in them. To part with them is as hard as cutting off a right hand or plucking out a right eye but it must be done. Departing must come. If wickedness was sweet in the sinner's mouth, if he hid it under his tongue, if it seemed good unto him and he did not forsake it, yet it must be given up if he wants to be saved. Job 20 verses 12 to 13. He and sin must quarrel if he and God are to be friends. Christ is willing to receive any sinners but he will not receive them if they will cling to their sins. To be a Christian will cost us our sins. It will cost him his love of ease. He must take pains and trouble if he intends to run a successful race toward heaven. He must daily watch and be on his guard like a soldier on the enemy's ground. He must take heed to his behavior every hour of the day in every company, and in every place, in public as well as in private, among strangers as well as at home. He must be careful with his time, his tongue, his temper, his thoughts, his imagination, his motives, and his conduct in every relation of life. He must be diligent about his prayers, his Bible reading, and his use of Sundays with all their means of grace. In attending to these things, he may come far short of perfection, but he cannot safely neglect any of them. The soul of the sluggard desires and attains nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made fat. Proverbs 13 verse 4 This all sounds difficult. There is nothing we naturally dislike as much as trouble in living our religion. We hate trouble. We secretly wish we could have a vicarious Christianity 
It could be good by having someone else be good for us, having everything done for us. Anything that requires exertion and labor is entirely against the grain of our heart. But the soul can have no gains without pains. To be a Christian will cost us our love of ease. It will cost him the favor of the world. He must be content to be thought poorly of by others, if he pleases God. He must not think it is a strange thing to be mocked, ridiculed, slandered, persecuted, and even hated. He must not be surprised to find his beliefs in Christian lifestyle despised and held up to scorn. He must accept that many people will consider him to be foolish, fanatical, and overzealous. He must understand that his words will be twisted and his actions misrepresented. In fact, he must not be surprised if some will call him crazy. The master says, Remember the word that I said unto you, The slave is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my word, they will keep yours also. John 15 verse 20 I must say that this also sounds difficult. We naturally dislike unjust dealing and false accusations, and we find it very difficult to be accused without cause. We would not be flesh and blood if we did not want to have the good opinion of our neighbors. It is always unpleasant to be spoken against, forsaken, lied about, and left standing alone, but there is no help for it. The cup that our master drank must be drunk by his disciples. They must be despised and rejected among men. Isaiah 53 verse 3 To be a Christian will cost us the favor of the world. This is the account of what it costs to be a true Christian. I admit that the list is a heavy one, but what item could be removed? Old indeed must that person be who would dare to say that we may keep our self-righteousness, our sins, our laziness, and our love of the world, and yet be saved. I admit that it costs much to be a true Christian, but who in his right mind can doubt that it is worth any cost to have one soul saved? When the ship is in danger of sinking, the crew thinks nothing of casting overboard the precious cargo. When an arm or a leg is affected by gangrene, one will submit to any severe operation, even to amputation, to save one's life. Surely a Christian should be willing to give up anything that stands between him and heaven. A Christianity that costs nothing is worth nothing. A cheap Christianity without a cross will prove in the end to be a useless Christianity without a crown. I will now explain why counting the cost is of such great importance to a person's soul. I could easily settle this question by laying down the principle that no duty established by Jesus Christ can ever be neglected without damage. I could show how many close their eyes throughout life to the nature of saving Christianity and refuse to consider what it really costs to be a Christian. I could describe how at last, when life is flowing away, they wake up and make a few erratic efforts to turn to God. I could tell you how they find, to their amazement, 
that repentance and conversion are not such easy matters as they had supposed, and that it costs a great deal to be a true Christian. They discover that habits of pride, sinful indulgence, love of ease and worldliness are not as easily laid aside as they had thought. And so, after a small struggle, they give up in despair and leave the world without hope, without grace, and unfit to meet God. They had flattered themselves all their days that Christianity would be easy work when once they took it up seriously. But they open their eyes too late to discover for the first time that they are ruined because they never counted the cost. There is one group of people to whom I especially want to address myself regarding this topic. It is a large group, a growing group, and a group that in these days is in specific danger. Let me try to describe this group in a few plain words. This deserves our utmost attention. The people I speak of are not thoughtless about Christianity. They think much about it. They are not ignorant of Christianity. They know the basic beliefs pretty well. Their great defect, though, is that they are not rooted and grounded in their faith. They have too often picked up their knowledge secondhand from being in religious families or from being trained in religious ways. But they have never worked it out by their own inward experience. Too often they have quickly taken up a profession of Christianity under the pressure of circumstances, from emotional feelings, from physical excitement, or from a general desire to do like others around them, but without any solid work of grace in their hearts. People like this are in a place of great danger. They are precisely those, according to Bible examples, who need to be exhorted to count the cost. Due to neglecting to count the cost, large numbers of the children of Israel perish miserably in the wilderness between Egypt and Canaan. They left Egypt full of zeal and fervor, as if nothing could stop them. But when they found dangers and difficulties in the way, their courage soon cooled down. They had never imagined that there would be trouble. They had thought they would be safely in the promised land in a few days. So when enemies, difficulties, hunger, and thirst began to make their presence known, the Israelites murmured against Moses and God, and would gladly have gone back to Egypt. They had not counted the cost, and so they lost everything and died in their sin. Because they neglected to count the cost, many of our Lord Jesus Christ's hearers went back after a time and walked no more with him. John 6, verse 66. When they first saw his miracles and heard his preaching, they thought that the kingdom of God would immediately appear. They cast in their lot with his apostles and followed him without thinking of the consequences. But when they found that there were difficult doctrines to be believed, hard work to be done, and harsh treatment to be endured, their faith gave way entirely and proved to be nothing at all. They had not counted the cost, and so made shipwreck of their profession of following Jesus. 
For failing to count the cost, King Herod returned to his old sins and destroyed his soul. He liked to hear John the Baptist preach. He observed and honored him as a just and holy man. He even did many things that were right and good, Mark 6, verse 20. But when he found that he must give up his darling Herodias, his religion entirely broke down. He had not considered this. He had not counted the cost. For lack of counting the cost, Demas left the company of Paul, rejected the gospel, turned his back on Christ, and renounced heaven. For a long time he had journeyed with the great apostle to the Gentiles and was actually a fellow laborer. Philemon 1 verse 24 But when he realized that he could not have the friendship of this world as well as the friendship of God, he gave up his Christianity and clung to the world. Demas has forsaken me, Paul said, having loved this present world. 2 Timothy 4 verse 10 He had not counted the cost. Because they do not count the cost, the hearers of powerful evangelical preachers often come to miserable ends. They are stirred and excited into professing what they have not really experienced. They receive the word with a joy so extravagant that it almost startles mature Christians. They continue for a time with such zeal and fervor that they seem likely to outgain all others. They talk and work for spiritual purposes with such enthusiasm that they make older believers feel ashamed. But when the novelty and freshness of their feelings is gone, a change comes over them. They prove to have been nothing more than stony ground hearers. The description the great master gives in the parable of the sower is exactly demonstrated. Temptation or persecution arises because of the word, and they are offended. Matthew 13, verse 21. Little by little their zeal melts away and their love becomes cold. In time their seats are empty in the assembly of God's people, and they are heard of no more among Christians. Why? They had never counted the cost. Because they never counted the cost, hundreds of professed converts under religious revivals go back to the world after a time and bring disgrace on Christianity. They begin with a sadly mistaken notion of what true Christianity is. They imagine that it consists in nothing more than a so-called coming to Christ and having strong inward feelings of joy and peace. So when they find after a while that there is a cross to be carried, that our hearts are deceitful, and that there is a busy devil always near us, they cool down in disgust and return to their old sins. Why? Because they never really knew what Bible Christianity is. They had never learned that they had to count the cost. For failure to count the cost, the children of religious parents often do not turn out well, and they bring disgrace on Christianity. Familiar from their earliest years with the form and the theory of the gospel, taught even from infancy to repeat the most common Bible verses, many being used to being instructed in the gospel every week, or even to instruct others in Sunday school, 
They often grow up professing Christianity without knowing why or without ever having thought seriously about it. Then when the realities of grown-up life begin to press upon them, they often astound everyone by dropping all their Christian ways and plunging right into the world. Why? Because they had never thoroughly understood the sacrifices that Christianity involves. They had never been taught to count the cost. These are serious and painful truths, but they are truth. They all help to show the immense importance of the subject I am now considering, and they help us realize the absolute necessity of pressing the subject on all who profess a desire for holiness. They urge us to cry aloud in all the churches, Count the cost. I will boldly say that it would be good if the duty of counting the cost were more frequently taught than it is. Impatient hurry is the order of the day with many professing Christians. Instantaneous conversions and immediate peace are the only results they seem to care for from the gospel. Compared with these, all other things are tossed aside. To produce them is the main goal and purpose. Apparently of all their labors, I say without hesitation, that such a weak one-sided mode of teaching Christianity is troublesome in the extreme. Let no one mistake my meaning. I thoroughly approve of offering a full, free, present, immediate salvation in Christ Jesus. I thoroughly approve of urging the possibility and the duty of immediate instantaneous conversion. In these manners I give place to no one, but I do say that these truths should not be set before people thoughtlessly or without explanation. They ought to be told honestly what it is they are taking up if they profess a desire to come out from the world and serve Christ. They should not be moved into the ranks of Christ's army without being told that what the warfare entails. They should be told honestly to count the cost. Does anyone ask what our Lord Jesus Christ's practice was in this manner? Let him read what Luke records. He tells us that on a certain occasion, the great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said unto them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children, and brethren and sisters, and even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Luke 14 verses 25 to 27. I must plainly say that I cannot reconcile this passage with the lives of many modern Christian pastors and teachers. Yet to my mind the doctrine is as clear as the sun at noonday. It shows us that we should not hurry people into professing discipleship without warning them plainly to count the cost. Does anyone ask what the practice of the eminent and best preachers of the gospel has been in days gone by? I am confident to say that they have all borne testimony to the wisdom of our Lord's dealing with the multitude, to which I have just referred. Martin Luther, Latimer. Richard Baxter, John Wesley, George Whitfield, John Berridge, and Roland Hill were all extremely aware of the deceitfulness of man's heart.
They knew very well that all is not gold that glitters, that conviction is not conversion, that feeling is not faith, that sentiment is not grace, and that all blossoms do not come to fruit. Do not be deceived, was her constant cry. Consider well what you do. Do not run before you are called. Count the cost. If we desire to do good, let us never be ashamed of walking in the steps of our Lord Jesus Christ. Work hard, if you will, and if you have the opportunity for the souls of others. Urge them to consider their ways. Compel them with holy intensity to come in, to lay down their arms, and to yield themselves to God. Offer them salvation, ready, free, full, immediate salvation. Urge Christ and all of his benefits on their acceptance. In all your work, though, tell the truth and tell the whole truth. Be ashamed to use the common art of a recruiting sergeant. Do not speak only of the uniform to pay in the glory, but also speak of the enemies, the battle, the armor, the vigilance, the marching, and the drills. Do not present only one side of Christianity. When you speak of the cross on which Christ died for our redemption, do not keep back the cross of self-denial that must be carried. Explain fully what Christianity involves. Exhort people to repent and come to Christ, but urge them at the same time to count the cost. 